If you were to die tonight, where would you end up? I grew up in the 90s on the prairies of Canada. It was basically the Christian ghetto of evangelism. What would happen is a youth speaker would come in, they'd sit all those kids down, and they'd ask us that question. They'd say, do you want to go to heaven with mommy and daddy, or do you want to go to hell and suffer for eternity? And us kids are sitting there, we're looking at this question, and we're thinking, uh, heaven? Yes, very good. Just pray this prayer with me. And okay, I might be stereotyping a little bit, but it wasn't too far off. Church in the 90s was a pretty wild time, man. But, for better or worse, as I began to wrestle with this talk on God's grace, I couldn't help but shake that question. If you were to die tonight, where would you end up? Because even though it, it is a bit on the nose, sure, how you approach that question really does reveal a lot about what you think of yourself and also what you think about God. So, for example, say you find yourself at the pearly gates and God asks you, why should I let you in? What would you say? Would you point to all the good things you've done? The fact you've tried to live your best life and sure you've made some mistakes here and there, but surely your good deeds outweigh your bad ones, right? Or maybe the opposite. You've arrived at the conclusion that maybe there is no hope for you. You've messed up one too many times. God would never want to let you in because you're just not good enough, you feel. See, how you understand God, how you understand yourself, will shape your approach to him. It'll also shape how you approach what kind of life you think you ought to live. Because when it comes to the question, if you were to die tonight, where would you end up? The overwhelming response from the Bible is that if it were up to us, we'd all be destined for hell. But God has thrown wide his heavenly gates on the basis of one simple truth, that you are saved by grace alone. Grace, this idea that God does not merely save the unworthy at the cost of his own blood, but he then loves them with such lavish abundance we can barely comprehend it. Now, nothing is more revealing about God and nothing is more revealing about myself. But what is grace? And how can we receive it for ourselves? That's what we're going to be unpacking over these next Two weeks that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. For today, I want to simply show you how the Bible presents the good news of God's grace. We'll look at who needs grace, what is grace, and why we are saved by grace. All right, so in case you've missed the memo up to this point, the topic is grace. Who needs it? What is it? Why has God saved us by it? Here's where it all begins. Who needs grace? Our need for grace. Who needs grace from verse one? The answer, everybody. Why? Because the natural state of every person is one of spiritual deadness. Okay, so just look at the first verse there in verse one. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins. All right, so say what you want of Paul. Uh, There's no mincing words for him, right? He's not saying you were sick. 
in your sins or feeling a little bit weak because of them. You don't just need healing or a spiritual support group. Our condition is far, far worse than that. You are, according to God's word, stone cold dead in sin. If you're going to understand God's grace, you've got to grapple with what the need is. See, what Paul's doing here is he's diagnosing the problems that we all know exist in the world. Right? So where does war come from? Why is there such widespread corruption? Why do greed and selfishness never seem to go away? They just resurface in different ways. He's diagnosing the problem closer to home as well. Why is it that we're drawn to things we know are bad for us? Things things that we know will destroy our lives, even destroy our relationships, and yet we still can't stop chasing after them. Or what is this frustration we've all felt? Knowing that we aren't who we should be, yet not being able to recreate a new identity for ourselves. See, my guess here is that nobody needs convincing that there are problems in the world and that we all have our own personal struggles, but where it is we're likely to disagree is in how we diagnose those problems. Because how we see the issue tells us a lot about how we see ourselves, but also how we see the world around us. Okay, so for example, if the problem is education, then you re-educate. If the problem is discipline, you read 12 rules for life. If the problem is chemical, you medicate. If it's not really a problem at all, then you just live with it, right? You just sort of push it to the side. But here in Ephesians 2, what Paul is saying is all those things are merely symptoms of a much deeper problem. That we actually live, we live in a world that's been separated from its creator, We live separated from God. And then in verses 2 and 3, he gives us a few examples of what that looks like. So first, he says, society itself is opposed to God. But then secondly, that makes sense because they're just following the ruler of the world. The spiritual forces opposed to God. So both the world and spiritual forces in this world are opposed to God. And this is the world that we live in. But here's Paul's big idea. The big idea here is that evil forces, you know, what the Bible calls Satan, and a society opposed to God, those aren't even the biggest issues in the world. Those aren't the biggest problems that we're facing. In fact, the primary issue in the world, the biggest problem, the final problem Paul puts his finger on, it's also the worst. It's us. It's the human heart. See that there in verse 3. We too, all previously lived among them, among the people in this world opposed to God. We all lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. We were by nature born children under wrath. Now, what that means is there's no one else to blame but ourselves. And what's worse is there's no escaping ourselves. The human heart is shot through with sin. And this is why there is so much brokenness in the world. And so much brokenness in us. We are spiritually dead. Now it's interesting, isn't it, how we try to work around this. 
how we compartmentalize our sins, convincing ourselves it's, it's not really a problem. You know, I can do something I know isn't right, but that doesn't make me a bad person because look at all the good things I've been doing over here. Paul says you can't do that. Those things that you're struggling with that surface at different points in different contexts in different ways that you know aren't right, it's just a symptom of a deeper problem. And it puts us on a collision course with God. We're children of wrath. Now I want to hit pause here. Because you might be sitting there thinking, Mitchell, this isn't my experience of the world. Sure, there's struggles. What about all the good things people do for one another? What about all the beauty of the art, the humanitarian efforts that happen right around the globe? And you're right. You're right. Because what Paul's doing here is he's simply diagnosing the problem. He's putting his finger on what it's like to be separated from God and then, and then all the misery that follows. But if we're to put this into a bigger picture and how this fits in with the rest of the way we face the world, it'd be something like this. Flowers. Okay? Everyone who knows me knows I love flowers. Right? Having a bad day at work, just swing by the shops, pick up a bouquet of Australian natives on your way home. Go to someone's house for dinner, show up with a bunch of lilies. Right? Nothing can bring joy, brighten up a room, bring some color into life quite as easily as flowers. And it's funny, isn't it, that flowers, they are so beautiful. Even in their dying state, even as they sit there on my dining room table with their days so obviously numbered, because that's what they are from the moment they're picked, aren't they? Dying, cut off from their source of life. And yet they sit there, don't they, bringing us joy, inspiring us that there's beauty in the world, even as they die, even as the petals wilt and fall. There's still a beauty to them. And this is the great paradox of humanity. Unbelievable beauty and creativity, a godlike ability to inspire and encourage and create, even while we wither away day by day. And that's the great tragedy that's, that Paul's describing here as well. That death is not natural. It's inevitable. It's not natural. Even death, physical death, is merely a symptom of a deeper problem. It's an outward sign of an inward reality that we are dead in our sins. Our hearts are cut off from our Creator. Just like a plucked flower can't regenerate itself, so too dead people can't raise themselves back to life. We need something or someone outside ourselves to come to us, rescue us from our sin, make us spiritually alive. Okay? That's the first point. Until you grasp that, your need for grace, you'll never appreciate the beauty and extravagance of God's solution to it. Now, some people aren't there yet. I, I understand that. You know, you're still working on the assumption that you're not spiritually dead, just a little bit misguided sometimes. Uh, your condition, it, it's still treatable. You just need the right sort of support, encouragement, motivation. Now, if, if that's you, you're not quite going to understand grace just yet. But some of you are there. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've, you've had those dark nights. You've tried to fix yourself or find yourself or recreate yourself and continue to come up empty. And if that's you, then these next few verses, they are really the greatest words we could ever hear. Brings us to our second point this morning. What is grace? 
What is grace? Well, simply put, grace is God's undeserved favor toward us in Christ Jesus. Grace is God's undeserved favor toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's look at those two things a bit more closely. First, that grace starts with God, and then secondly, it's poured out in Jesus. So see there how it starts with God in verse 4. But God, who's rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Do you see what Paul is saying here? The solution to the problem is not you. It's God. Now, is that a blow to our pride? Perhaps. It's also a sigh of relief, isn't it? Because I wasn't doing a very good job at making myself undead. But then secondly, not only am I saved by grace alone, I'm also given the assurance that my salvation is solid. Because my salvation is based on something concrete, something unchangeable. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So just see the link there between God's grace and Jesus' work on the cross. In verse 5, we've been made alive in Christ even when we were dead in our sin. In verse 6, we were raised up with Jesus out of death into the glory that's been given because of Christ's work and not ours. In verse 7, somehow, we're not just made right with God here and now, but our future blessing is caught up in Christ Jesus. So we're saved now, but we're also promised an eternal salvation where we'll live with God and his people forever and ever. Now, just think about the beauty of this. First, that God should even save me. Second, that he should do it at the cost of his own son. Third, that he'd give me a future I could never dream of, simply because God is love and he loves to have mercy. I mean, what kind of God are we dealing with here? The answer is, no God you've ever encountered before. There's a story um, Philip Yancey shares in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. Here's how the story goes. He says, during a British conference on comparative religions, uh, let me just pause there, I'll explain in pop terms. It's a bunch of old white dudes who are sitting around a fire, right? Probably, probably. And they're all experts in their own study uh, of world religion, having a bit of a yarn. They're trying to work out if Christianity has any um, beliefs or teachings that are unique to the Christian faith, okay? So they're going through the options, incarnation, this idea that God became man. No, other stories have, uh, other religions have stories of God appearing in human form. Well, what about resurrection? No, again, other religions, myths, they share accounts of, you know, their own heroes returning from the dead. Apparently, the debate goes on for some time until in wanders our dear lad, C.S. Lewis, he says, what's all the rumpus about? His colleagues tell him, oh, we're having a bit of a discussion. Uh, whether there's anything that's unique about Christianity. And immediately Lewis answers, that's easy. It's easy. It's grace. After more discussion, these experts have to agree. The idea of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. As they go on to discuss 
You know, the Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, Jewish Covenant, Moses, uh, Moses, Muslim Code of Law. Each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Nothing you can do to earn God's salvation. Nothing you can do to disqualify you from God's salvation. From beginning right through to the end, you are saved by grace alone. Which raises a startling question. If God saves us by grace alone, as the Bible teaches, no strings attached, then doesn't that mean we can just live life however we want? I mean, what's, what's the point then? Well, this brings us to our final point, number three. Why are we saved by grace? Why? Well, we are saved by grace so that we can live the life we were created to live. It's to free us up to live the life we're created to live. I was, I was doing a deep clean of my room. Uh, this story is only going to be interesting um, if you are like, I don't know, over the age of 30 probably. <laughs> doing a deep clean of my room, came across one of my favorite birthday gifts. Okay, it's from 18 years ago, right? From my 18th birthday. So, about a, yeah, I'm turning 36 this year, next, next month. About a dozen friends of mine, all my music buddies, they all pitch in and they buy me a brand new 2005 iPod video, 30 gigabyte, with click wheel. Yes, it still works. Still have a charging cable for it. And yes, I still have my old iTunes library on it. We can have a listening party after. <laughs> now here's what didn't happen when I opened this gift. As my friends are standing around me and I tear open the wrapping paper and you know, I have this iPod in my hand. It's iPod video. video. Did I mention that it's got video? <laughs> what I didn't do is reach into my pocket, pull out a fat wad of cash, and start handing out $20 notes to my mates. Why not? It was a gift. It's a birthday gift. By definition, a gift is something we receive for free. In fact, I'd argue, it would be offensive, wouldn't it, for me to offer them money for it? Mitch, what are you doing, mate? Put, put that away. Your money's no good here. We've already paid for it. Now, that's how Paul says salvation comes to us, okay? As a gift, free of charge. So verse 8. For you're saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is, you finish? It is God's gift, not from works, right? So that no one can boast. Now, here's, here's why I make a big deal of this. Um, some churches teach that in order to be saved by God, we need his grace, absolutely, and at least a little bit of work on our part. Okay? Now, for example, and this isn't to discredit all the beautiful and wonderful things uh, that other people have contributed uh, to the faith, but an example of this topic might be something like the Catholic Church, okay? That says God makes our hearts come alive by faith, uh, by grace, but then we have to work alongside God to grow that faith, to complete it in order to achieve salvation. And this happens mainly by things like observing 
the sacraments, doing other good works like attending Mass. Uh, or in uh, the Mormon Church. Okay, so I've come across a lot of people who've uh, come out of the Mormon Church. In order to be saved, you have to, in order for your salvation to be true, I should qualify, you have to keep the temple ordinances, uh, be involved in missionary activity, and of course, give them your money uh, through tithing. Now, in each case, yes, God's involved in our salvation, but so are you. And if you tend to these good works in a meaningful way, you'll receive eternal life. But that just can't be true, can it? In fact, I'm going to argue it's offensive to God. It's like reaching into my pocket and trying to pay off God for a gift he's already given me. Okay, listen. Our good works play no part in how acceptable we are to God. But, I think even for a lot of Christians like ourselves here in our evangelical churches like ours, we also struggle to work out what grace looks like in our everyday life. So yes, we know we're saved by grace. Yes, we know we'll be justified on the last day by grace. But what do we do with this in-between? It's often the in-between that we struggle with. Almost as if we have to maintain God's favor, keep him happy, through our own performance as Christians. Now, I'll give you an example of what this might look like from my own life. I've, um, I've been a Christian basically my whole life, okay? But I was raised in a church tradition that, for the most part, used the Bible as a rule book. So, do this, don't do that, then you'll be a good Christian. So, I became really good at, at keeping rules. Which, sure, talk to my parents probably isn't a bad thing when you're a teenager. Uh, not that my parents are doing it at the church, you know. I'm sure that it's great uh, having a teenage son who's good at keeping rules. But that wasn't really great at maturing my faith. And here's why. Because I would assume that I was sweet with God, that my relationship was sweet with him, because I didn't uh, drink or smoke or swear or listen to secular music. Remember, it was the 90s, right? Okay. And what's worse is, other Christians, friends of mine who would do some of those things, I would judge them as, as less than me, as not a, as good of a Christian as, as, as me. Okay, fast forward to my early 20s. I'm now in Bible college, trained to become a pastor when the truth of God's grace finally dropped for me. So I'm sitting in class one day, we're going through Mark's gospel, I just have this aha moment, like, oh, oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus really is the whole point of the Bible. Okay, I get it now. Cool, 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 cool. And it, I must say, it was a totally freeing experience to know that God smiles at me, not on the basis of my own works, but for no other reason than the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm saved by grace alone. Completely freeing experience, transformed how I view myself in God, which is why I've been banging on about grace ever since. Fast forward now to just last week. It's going through some gnarly things. <laughs> I'm wrestling with God in prayer. And then I heard this slip out of my mouth. God, how come all these things are happening to me? I've been so faithful to you. Whoops. What am I doing? I'm still operating on a works-based faith aren't I? It's a bit more subtle, sure, 
But I'm assuming that because I've been such a good boy, which isn't even true, by the way, I sin all the time, but my assumption is because I've been faithful in some areas of life, I deserve God's blessing in other areas of life. Okay? Now, are there good and bad consequences for the choices we make? Absolutely there are. But does God ever deal with us based on what we deserve? Thankfully not, otherwise we'd all be dead. See, the problem for me is I'm failing to allow God's grace to trickle down into every corner of my heart. I'm failing to grasp how I'm not only saved by grace alone, but I'm actually kept by grace alone. Not through any performance or anything I can or cannot do for God. I, in every corner of my life, God deals with us wholly and totally by his grace. But, here's the point, let's listen closely. Grace does not mean apathy. It does not mean we can just do whatever we want. Yes, it's true that our good works play no part in us being acceptable to God, but they do play a big part in our lives. And here's why. Because the very reason God has raised us to new life in Christ is so that we can now do all the good things he's already prepared for us to do. Now, those aren't my words. Listen to Paul, verse 10, final verse. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. See, grace, God's grace, has made us his workmanship, his art pieces. He's setting us free to live the life we were created to live, the life he's created for us. And God's good at what he does. He's like an artist or a sculptor that you watch and you wonder what he's producing, and then over time the beauty comes out. I love the way that James K. Smith puts it. In grace, God looks at my past and sees a sketch of a work of art that he wants to finish painting. In the hands of such an artist, all our weaknesses are openings for strength, the cracks to let the light in. See, the promise here is that God will produce in us a life that's filled with things that will demonstrate his grace to the world, a life so unique, so countercultural, that people will appear and they'll wonder, what would inspire us to live like that? Let me give you some examples, and then we'll wrap. For example, here's what that might look like in our own lives lived out. Look, anyone can forgive once or twice. Only grace can produce people who forgive again and again and again, often at cost to themselves, because they know how much it cost God to forgive us in Christ Jesus. Anyone can be generous, especially when they're posting it on social media. Only grace can produce people who recognize that giving away what we have is actually a privilege. It's, a, it's one small way we can reflect the generosity God's shown us in Christ, that the one who gave up everything to be with us. Anyone can exist in a community of like-minded people. Only grace can produce communities full of people from such diverse backgrounds who are committed to loving one another because they know what that love looks like in Christ. Listen, anyone can tell the truth when it benefits them. 
Only grace can produce people who are so open and honest about their flaws, their shortcomings, their struggles, because they know their identity. It's not in who they are or what they've done, but in who God is, what he's done for us in Christ. Do you see? God's grace, it lifts our eyes off of ourselves and onto God and those around us. We're given a sure foundation, knowing that God's done all of the work on our behalf, and he now calls us to live a life in response to that grace as we make his glorious riches known throughout the world. All right, so as, as we wrap up, if you were to die tonight, where would you end up? Well, it's not too late to change your answer. That's the whole point of grace. God's salvation, it's free, it's open to all who put their trust in Jesus. Not because of anything good you've done, but because of God's abundant love for you. For you are saved by grace through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's God's gift. Let's pray. God, only you could come up with a solution to a problem so deep as human sin. This issue that we created by rejecting you, and yet you solved at the cost of yourself. From beginning to end, you treat us in a way we do not deserve as you lavish your love upon us because it is who you are. Lord, there are so many people here today, myself included, who struggle to grab hold of this. That we are who we are, not because of anything we could do, but because of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, help that to trickle down into every part of our hearts. That we might be communities that shine like stars in a world that is desperate for your grace, in a world that's eating itself alive, tearing apart at the seams. Only you, Lord, have the solution. And it's only by the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can be saved. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the life you give us. Thank you for your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.